Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a Zoom grid with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today to discuss all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism is acclaimed American critic Jim Farber. Hello, Jim. Hello. Hello to all. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Jim. Jim's joining us from his native New York City, where for 25 years he was music editor and chief music critic for the New York Daily News. He wrote his first piece for Rolling Stone at the tender age of 17. And in this episode, we'll be talking to him about Jabriath, Mark Bolan, and to cite the title of a wonderful New York Times piece he wrote in 2016, Growing Up Gay to a Glam Rock Soundtrack. <laughs> Jim, where precisely did you grow up, and what is your earliest formative pop memory? Ooh, um, well, I grew up in, well, first Yonkers, New York, so just maybe half an hour north of the city, and then uh, really mainly growing up, you know, junior high school and all of that in Hartsdale, which is known only for a fairly famous pet cemetery. <laughs> some very some very famous triggers and lassies are buried there. <laughs> Did you spend a lot of time in the pet cemetery? Not enough, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm, this is one of my great regrets of my childhood. <laughs> so what is what if if there's one like memory of hearing a piece of music or seeing something on the Ed Sullivan show, something like that. Is there, is there something that, that turned you into a pop fanatic? Well, I always loved music mm. and I always loved sound. So when I was a really little kid, my parents listened to classical music. So that's kind of what was around. And then the only other, the, the kind of most pop records that they would have, and they're from the World War II generation, you know, so I mean, it's really, it's not, I know some, some, People who are writing now, maybe their parents could have been rock fans or, or you sure. know, my parents were older and I'm older. So, <laughs> so the, the kind of pop, the kind of closest to pop records that we had, um, and they were hugely popular at the time, were all the, you know, soundtracks from the movie versions of the Broadway musicals. So mm -hmm. it'd be like My Fair Lady and, um, you know, The Sound of Music and West Side Story. But, but those things were at the top of the charts, you know, at, at that time and stayed on yeah. for years. Um, so My Fair Lady, I think, was the one that I was most, most obsessed with, you know, and would listen to it like, the same way a child does thousands and thousands of times, you know, forever, you know. Yeah. So that was first. And then in terms of what, I mean, I suppose as a very little kid, I would hear the Four Seasons, a lot of Motown stuff. What was on AM radio, and we have a little transistor radio then, so I mean, the sound is absolutely horrendous. It's all treble and there's Very no trebly. bass. It's yeah. unbelievable. You know, it's really like ants singing and dancing. But that's all <laughs> I knew, and I wasn't exactly an audiophile at that point. So, you know, I still thought it sounded absolutely fantastic and was great. And I've always loved, you know, I've always been attracted to all kinds of music, you know, so which set me up well for later, you know, especially the job at the Daily News much later, because you have to, as a pop critic, get to cover everything. So I never really, as much as I might identify with one genre over another, but I was never using like Black Sabbath against Judy Collins, you know. Like, they're both, <laughs> that would you know, be a very unfair contest. It's a very unfair yeah. contest. I mean, I, but I identified with Black Sabbath, but I also thought, you know, I love folk records and everything. And, you know, so it was kind of everything. And then the writing thing actually started very, very young. I mean, really at, um, well, I guess at 14, that started. 
if you're interested. Yes, <laughs> so, 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 oh. what, of course know. we are. Of course you want we are. To know. And we, well, we need your 14 year old writings on, on pop music. Oh, yeah. I'd no, love to see what, that. When, what, what prompted you? <laughs> what inspired you to write for the first right. time about popular music? Right. I will tell you, so I'm 14. I think somebody smart once said that nobody's first review is a negative review. I think there's always that sort of evangelical sense of like, I have received the word of God and now all of humanity must know, right? So the way this happened was I heard Alice Cooper's I'm 18 on the radio and I don't think he even got to, and I was 14 at the time, so I've got four, he's got four years on me. <laughs> so I already think it's advanced. I don't think I even got to the end of the song. I was so excited that I levitated to Corvettes and Yonkers, which I, where I would later work in high school, to buy the record. And then, of course, you see that album cover, and it's like, what the fuck? I mean, there's like the <laughs> ugliest three freaks you've ever seen. Like, this has got to be good, you know? And then the name is Alice, but it's a guy. Like, everything was great. You know, you, just, you couldn't figure out any part of it. So that's very, very exciting to a child. Mm. So I, I take the album home, I start playing it, and I don't think I got to the third track before I called up my next-door neighbor, Stephen Schiffman, and said, you have to come over here right now. Um, and he comes over, I, and I took back to the bring it back to the beginning and I start playing it for him and he doesn't get to the third track before he levitates and goes to Corvettes to buy this record. <laughs> and I keep on inviting people over and this happens every single time. Nobody can get to Black Juju. You don't even get through the first side. You know? um, and there's now like a, a path like between my house and Corvettes that people from tre treaded of everybody going to get this record. So this is a long way of saying. So then I thought, well, the word of God must be spread further. So I wrote a you know little review of the album and um, submitted it to my junior high school paper. And they printed it with a cute little drawing of a snake on it. You know? and, um, and so it went from there. You know, I love the idea of Alice Cooper being the, the voice of God. This is. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. I thought, I mean, and I'm sure the review said that this is like not since the Bible, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> something so important happened. But that's, you know, you need to have those lunatic, you know, you, you need to have those lunatic ideas, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, then yeah, this, yeah. and then for some reason, this belief that you have to be the one and that any to talk about this and that anyone should listen. Mm, mm, <laughs> oh, mm, yeah. so that's just i don't know what self-involvement or arrogance or something fantastic I mean, what a what a great i mean i'm 18 what a sort of great portal to this sort of demonic world of rock and roll i mean yes. it's probably a good thing it wasn't i'm 14 because you probably wouldn't have been interested right <laughs> no it, would, it, would, it wouldn't have seemed advanced enough no exactly <laughs> You, know, you always want something aspirational. You know, you always want something that seems a little above or out of reach. And coming in at that time, what I had, I had just missed, you know, this, the, the peak of psychedelia. You know, I started to go to concerts then at 14 as well. So I, that was just when the Fillmore was closing. So I've always, that drives me absolutely out of my mind. You know, when I have <laughs> friends who are a little older than me and they got to see those shows and it, Dry, I, I'm, I become furious you know, <laughs> with, with jealousy. I'm so jealous of that. Fantastic. Yeah. What was the first show that you ever saw? Well, again, I'm turning 14 and my dad says, what do you want for your birthday? So it says that I want to see a concert because I would stare at those bills, you know, the Fillmore and 
where I lived in Westchester, there was a place called the Capitol Theater in Portchester. Right. And, yeah, they had, yeah, yeah. and they had the same shows. It, it has since reopened about 10 years ago or about 15 years ago. But Howard, Howard Stein ran it then, sort of parallel to Bill Graham, in a sense. And so it was. A, I had just heard the Johnny Winter and live record, which I really loved. And so I said, well, I want to go to that. And so, you know, my dad got me two tickets. And with the aforementioned Steve Schiffman, we went to see the show. <laughs> and, you know, and it was one of those running away with the circus things. You know, I see it and I yeah, think, like, yeah. this is it. You know, it's yeah. like I'm not turning back. I'm just I'm going to see everything I can and listen to everything I can. And I'm kind of not going to do anything else <laughs> ever. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, saw Johnny Win- I saw Johnny Winter around at the Arbor Hall in 71. Oh, uh, yeah, 71. Rick Derringer on guitar. Um, yes. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was terrific. <laughs> I was so horrified later. This is only shortly before Johnny's death. I was doing an interview with him mm-hmm. and I was telling, and he wasn't, he was in really bad shape by that sure. time, you know, and I was telling him how much I love that record. He, <laughs> he said, Oh God, I hate that record. Yeah, no, I, I've, heard, I've heard this report. He, he said, it's my only gold record and, and we're playing and me and Rick are playing all over each other. And I said, that's the part I liked. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I, I've always, I hate when a producer comes in there and, and says to the musicians, you and this corner and you in that corner i love like the who thing like they're all playing on top of mm-hmm. each other yes and yes. cream you know that it's like you know with the bass mistakes himself for elite guitars i love that i remember rick derringer had a pair of eyes sewn to the ass of his jeans mm. and he would oh, yeah. do is wiggle his ass so these eyes were wobbling across the stage <laughs> Oh yeah, that that That's band. Cool. I mean, they had a lot of great gimmicks with that. You yeah. know, yeah, I mean, yeah. the, this is a bit later. But um, just a quick aside here: if you want to see one of the great visuals of glam rock in Edgar Winter's band, yeah, the yeah, bassist yeah. Dan Hartman had a bass suit. Do you remember this thing yeah. where the where <laughs> the, the strings were built into the suit? So he's really, you know pawing himself, you know, because, you know, the bass strings are lower, so it's right at crotch level. And he's just really going at it and railing, you know, in front of everybody. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh, Dan Hartman himself is a kind of really interesting character. I mean, totally. a very closeted gay, died of AIDS, I believe. Yes, yeah, yeah. Wrote yeah. some fantastic disco tunes and instant yeah. replays. And that yes, was yeah, his yeah. favorite. Mm. Yeah, the standard. So to quickly go, you know, how the Rolling yeah, sure. Stone thing happened quickly, so then I'll get all that other because the rest of it, <laughs> nothing matters. <laughs> but but the, 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 so the origin stories are what matters. So you will remember in 1974, it was a huge, huge event where Dylan and the band were going to tour. And they had not, you know, Dylan had not played a, a tour since, what, like 66 or something? Yes, so correct, eight, 66. Eight, eight years is, you know... 20 mega lifetimes in the life of pop culture. So this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And everybody wants to see this show in the world. So because it's such a big deal, and he played like, I don't know, four or five shows in Madison Square Garden. There were a number of shows, but it was, mm-hmm. it was a national tour. And so they advertised where you, ha- you had to, it was a lottery to win the right to buy tickets, basically. Yeah. So I entered the lottery and super lucky. I won, and it's specific seats, you get to the right to buy second row center seats, you know? So there I am, you know, with Dylan spitting on me and, and everything is so <laughs> great, you know? So we get there early, we're all excited, my little friends. And this woman comes over to us who says she's from Rolling Stone. 
she's asking us like, do we get our tickets legitimately? Or like, are we rich kids or something like this? And, you know, we know somebody. So I began talking to her and I asked her who she was because I was reading a lot of stuff. At mm-hmm. And she said she was Lorraine Alterman. Oh, who, Lorraine, uh, yeah. Who I read every Sunday in the Times Arts and Leisure section. You know, she always had a feature. That's how I found out about Layla. She always had something in it. And the, that was opposite the page where had the sales at, Cor- at Corvettes where everybody bought their records. So, you, so you, you know, they had different label sales. You, you knew what you were going to buy. So I knew exactly who she was, you know, and I'm blabbing all about this. So I think she was happy that this brat knew who she was. <laughs> so she quoted me saying something ridiculous in the book. And then I, at that time, besides, I was writing for a, a local kind of thing called the Scarsdale Inquirer, you know, which is a very local kind of sheet. And there was like ladies lunches or something like this. And so they, they I had written a review there that was printed. And my mom said, you know, why don't you send the review to Lorraine Alterman? And I did. And then she got back to me and she, she liked it enough. And so she gave me a tryout, which was bad companies for a show in America in Central Park. I think opening for somebody else. Then uh, the assignment that I got that actually did appear in Rolling Stone was Roy Wood's Wizard. You know, mm-hmm. who are, uh, had an unfortunate billing of opening for the horrible Black Oak, Arkansas, and a hor- <laughs> horrible audience. You know, this was also a big deal because, of course, you know, I don't know if I don't think the move ever uh, played in America or something, or certainly he hadn't been here for a long time. He's like mm-hmm. a band, I think, for burning a flag or something like this. And so this was the long time. But I mean, there were five people who cared about this, and certainly nobody in that audience. To be honest, the show wasn't very good. You know. <laughs> Uh, because his album before that was really good. And this was the kind of, it was the concept album he was just doing, kind of wrote um, 50s thing. And I didn't think it worked. But anyway, mm. so then that was the first thing. Okay. At, in Rolling Stone. Given that you wrote also for Circus and Cream in the 70s, I have actually a list here that Mark very kindly put together of just <clears throat> reviews and interviews that you did for Rolling Stone and those other publications. What was your sense, Jim, of what was your take on you know, rock journalism in that decade, you know, when, who were you reading? Were you influenced by anyone or what? I was influenced by everyone. Um, right. I think all of us, particularly in America at that time, were really taken with Lester Bangs. Sure. You know, he, he was sort of the one that you really kind of um, looked up to, um, partially because he was so entertaining, yeah. you know, and so funny. And at that time, this is an important point, I think, not just for writers, but the reader, and even in a bit a bit for the stars, people took criticism then as sport, you know? So it was like all in kind of good fun. You didn't necessarily think you were going to agree with somebody, you know? It was just, it was just you know, if they express themselves in an interesting or entertaining way, you that's what would draw you in. So, you know, it, so it wasn't influential in terms of, you know, that I'm going to agree with them on, on stuff, but just the, I thought the writing was great. And I really liked the stuff in Cream. I was mainly writing for Circus, which was more literal minded. You know? Yes, and that yeah, was flat. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. Um, although there was dry. interesting, stuff. fairly dry, right? One might. Well, say. it was more or more worshipful. You know, it's a major bugbear of mine that I see. And I actually, I just uh, proved up a interview you did with Ted Nugent, which is actually oh. marvelous. Oh, thank you. you That's how I became get... a staff writer. Actually, that was that piece. Well, you managed to get some humor in in a way that was extracted in circus by very good writers. Dan Luger, 
really funny for the village voice, mm-hmm. very dry for the for circus. So was that was that the house policy of the magazine? No, not stated. I mean, I, it might work out that way. I think you know, there's, there's this thing that there's a thing called Jim Farber exceptionalism. Um, which <laughs> tried, this is a philosophy I'm trying to spread throughout the world. Um, but I don't know. There was a certain kind of thing. You know, especially when you're a kid, I was so young, you know, I'm like, well, I'm like about that time, like 18, 19, 20, you know, I, you, and all the writers then were really full of themselves, you know, yeah. it's kind of, which is insane. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, the way writers used to carry on that it was if somehow you're more important than the band, which is just nuts and terrible journalism, but it was, you know, a lot of what happened then. So I think. A lot of it was bluster. And in fact, the humor in that Ted Nugent piece, I said, I'd done just a couple of pieces for Circus. Mm-hmm. And when I turned in that piece, Jerry Rothberg, the publisher, he really loved it. And so uh-huh. then he made that the cover story. And then then he then I became a, a, a staff writer there, which I was able to do well in college because it just it was a biweekly. You just handed in stuff. Sure. I mean, at that time, you had, to, you had to physically take it in to the city because yeah. you know? <laughs> there was no facts or anything. No, so there could be humor. I mean, there were, in fact, my co-staff writer at that time was Wesley Strick, right. um, who later became a very successful screenwriter and showrunner yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Wesley was hilarious. He was very funny, you know, right. Um, right. and very creative. So I, I think it could be funny, but it wasn't, um, I think the difference was with Cream. I mean, they really, <laughs> it was funny, but they went on the attack with just about everybody. It yeah. was really, really irreverent. You know? yeah, yes. Yes, it was. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph of this Robert Fripp piece that you wrote for Cream in November 78, just to give a sense of your very elegant kind of wit. It's just more sort of elegant than, than Lester yeah. Bangs's humor. But So it starts, when Robert Fripp finally retired King Crimson to the home for aging Mellotrons back in late <laughs> 1974, he let out a string of Gene Dixon-style predictions that promised nothing but eye-gouging, entrail-splattering destruction for those foolish mortals left on Earth who did not heed the word. And then a little lady you quote, Robert. The English art rock progressive bands should have yawned to a close, at least by 1974. (laughs) Their carcasses continue to twitch, Fripp said in his New York apartment. (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed by my background. Now, one of the reasons for mentioning this is because you uh, interviewed Robert again last year after after many years. I don't know if you interviewed him at points between 1978 and 2022, but... How had he changed? And this was on the back of that amazing Crimson documentary that we all saw. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Had he changed at all? Or was he the the same? He has sort of, I mean, you know, he's always witty. Um, He's always incredibly precise. He remembers everything. In fact, he, you know, he said, I don't think we'd spoken for 45 years. He says, didn't I meet you in 1978? No. No, I'm not kidding. And and it's kind of like, wow. He would know the barometric pressure of the day. It's... it's, (laughs) unbelievable OCT. But, you know, Robert has, has rather famously changed in the, in the last few years. Again, he was always funny, but he's become much, much mellower in a sense, more accepting. He's, he's very, very sweet now, you know. So when we did the interview, um, a lot of things that he said that were kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the gossipy stuff, he, you know, he, he you know, was off the record, you know, so I, I can't even talk about it now. But it was very funny stuff. But Warm. I mean, he criticized a lot of the musicians he worked with, um, who were still his friends. But it was, you know, it's it had it had a warmth to it that I don't think 
people people would not have described him as warm in earlier eras. You know? <laughs> Definitely not. And 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 they did not describe him as warm in the film. Of course, they're, they're what I love about it is is that they're allowed to say exactly what they think of his eccentricities. Oh, yeah. I think it's an amazing film. I mean, even it's if you're fantastic. not a crim- even if you're not a crimson fan, I think it's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. So it was great that you were able to talk to him again. The yellow jester does not play, but gently pulls the strings. Smiles as the puppets dance in the court of the crimson. I want to talk about one of the pieces I remember reading by you before Rock's Back Pages started, which was the essay in Rolling Stone, the 70s, which I think is one of the best books Rolling Stone ever did. And you were involved in a number of them. But you wrote this fantastic essay called The Androgynous Mirror. And I was actually researching a little book on glam rock myself. So I found your that piece you wrote, incredibly helpful and insightful. And it starts, On a swampy July night in 1974, I left my suburban home bound for David Bowie's Diamond Dogs concert, which was at Madison Square Garden. Dressed in midnight blue eyeliner, hepatitis yellow platforms, <laughs> and a lollipop green jacket pulled at the shoulder and bustled at the back. And you then say, at perhaps no other time in history could two 16-year-old boys, I don't know if the other one was Stephen Schiffman, the aforementioned, it was, it, was <laughs> it was not, could have made such a trip and not been slandered, beaten, or worse. Yet here we were, graced by a time, the mid-70s, and buoyed by a trend, glitter rock, that turned out to be golden. A time when the relationship between flouncy affectation and sexual orientation seemed tenuous at best. How lucky for me to be going through a sexual identity crisis at the precise moment that pop culture was having one too! Exclamation mark. <laughs> it's fabulous stuff. It's I mean, you're always such such Thank a you. pleasure to read, Jim, and Thank have you. been for 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 all these years. So, just wanted to 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 kind of get into. I mean, the reason to talk about glam rock or glitter rock, as it was more commonly known in the U.S., is partly because Jabriath, the extraordinary and sort of still little-known Jabriath died 40 years ago next week. Mm. And I also happened to find this Mark Bolan cassette tape interview from 71. So I wanted, sort of wanted to go back to that androgynous. You also sent us this fabulous piece that you wrote for the New York Times I mentioned earlier, Growing Up Gay to a Glam Rock soundtrack, which is which is absolutely superb as well. Possibly, well, I would say probably, yes, even, even better than the androgynous mirror. So just <laughs> to sort of ask you about glam the first inklings that you had of glam i mean was it was it t-rex was it was it bolan was what was the first sort of sense you had that this thing was starting this, this phenomenon was beginning well i heard the term from alison Steele, who's a wonderful wonderful dj with one of the best dj voices ever on WNEW FM, which was my kind of Bible, and that's where you found out about everything. Her specialty actually was Prague rock, you know, which I liked a lot. But she was also talking about glam, and then Scott Muni, who he had a show on Friday, who's another DJ there, called Things from England, and he would play all the pop stuff. He would play things that maybe you wouldn't, that would be a bit lighter or poppier than you would normally hear on this, you know, groovy undergrad FM station. And so because those were the hits in England then, so I was hearing a lot of that through that. So that was where I heard T-Rex then, you know, the the glam T-Rex, you know, not not the acoustic early 
you know, goofy stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, and even, you know, as I said, the aforementioned Alice Cooper, you know, obviously was glammy in terms of, you know, wearing makeup and dressing up and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was just, it was so different. And it was, I think I mentioned this, the androgynous mirror. I mean, it was lucky being 14 at that time. You're right sort of in the in the in the marketer's crosshairs you know i mean this is sort of and it's great it's great to be like a sitting duck for that stuff actually (laughs) because you get you know it's it's meant for you you can buy into it and that's exciting you know it's it's a nice pop culture experience yeah i mean i'm always grateful that you know i came in with glam rock i mean it really was for me essentially you did the other another piece that we're going to feature on the homepage by you is the interview you did actually just last year with Mark Armand, where he talks about seeing T-Rex on top of the pops in exactly the way that I saw T-Rex on top of the pops. And that was my, you know, I was too, too young for the Beatles and Stones in the Mm sixties. And it was seeing Mark Bull on top of the pops that just changed everything for me. I mean, I've never really recovered. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Wow. You know, that's and, something. Um, yeah, and um, <laughs> good for you. Yeah, I mean, it was I, obviously you know as the next two or three years went by, and by the time you got to something like well, either you know, Young Americans or even Station to Station, you kind of understood that Mark Boland's talent was somewhat limited, shall we say? Sure. And yeah. Bowie's was considerably more sort of expansive and exploratory, but nonetheless. I love the fact that Mark Almond says, I mean, I, I thought this was, this was so sweet. He said, when Mark first appeared on TV, it was on top of the while I watched my black and white TV, this person appeared with glitter on his face, was very effeminate and was playing guitar in his, in his very sexual way. For people like me, it was opening a door into something else. People credit Bowie with that, but really it was Mark who opened the door for him. Bowie was a multifaceted artist, but Mark Boland was a star. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, yeah, Bolin was the, the the star kind of impact. The star quality of Mark Bolin was was a, was an amazing thing. And so maybe we should just listen to a, a couple of short bits of Mark talking, and, and this will take us all back to those halcyon days. I was dancing when I was twelve. I was dancing when I was twelve. I mean, you must be aware of that area of criticism where some people say, oh, there's Bolan on top of the pops being a bit of a poser again. Do, well, do you resent that? Not at all, because um, it's not true. I mean, I know what I'm doing. I mean, I never, I never even think about stuff like that. I mean, I always wiggle with my hands. I was always a wiggler. Just that when you're sitting down cross-legged, it's very hard to wiggle, you know. So, but that's... I used to dig dancing. I mean, I, you know, I always was into dancing. Um... Cosmic Dancer on that track is about, I mean, it's the first time I danced myself right out of the womb. And I danced myself into the tomb, then I danced myself out of the womb, which is the reincarnation thing. I mean, that's how I look on, on the way I've lived my whole life. You know, it's um, expression, you know. I mean, the worst thing in the world is to be anywhere and not see people that you really like and are frightened to talk to them. Or to be like a wallflower. Or, oh, you know, everyone's experienced that. When you really hear a funky sound and you really want to get up and groove and you're frightened to, right? Dance myself right out the womb. I dance myself right out the womb. Mark, give us a little context on this audio interview. 
Yeah, Electric Warriors had been out for a little bit, and it's about he talks about its reception, about how it's actually a more complex record than it first appears if you listen very closely on headphones. On headphones, <laughs> he talks about how it relates to his previous career as Tyrannosaurus Rex, which is the sitting down cross legged Bolan, um, and uh, being accused of selling out. Uh, and if, let's listen to the next clip actually, because he talks about the three-minute single about his series of these big hits, his first hits, Hot Love, Get It On, Ride A White, a white Swan, uh, and the nature of the three-minute single. So let's have a listen to this. You told me last time that I talked to you, in fact, that you felt uh, with Hot Love that yeah. you'd got into a kind of um, feeling for mm. producing singles yeah uh, producing best-selling singles that you could go on well making making three-minute records now whether they're best-selling is down to the people that want to buy them i mean yeah but you um, I, I still don't know what a commercial record is no, although your people in the business come up and me and say oh well you got it on you know and i don't know what they're talking about you know what i mean i mean i don't know what a commercial record is um i know what i like and i i'm, I'm i get excited by putting down a three-minute track right and I think Hot Love did that for me. Yeah. But um, you would agree, would you not, that there is a similarity in approach between sort has of to Get be, It yeah. On and Hot Love sure. and Ride well, A White Swan. When you three minutes, it has to be. Yeah. But, but even the sound, I mean, the sort of clip-clopping sort of beat that runs through those Possibly. Things, oh, but, I mean, yeah. I like a certain guitar sound. I like a certain drum sound. Mm. Um, I think Get It On is by far the strongest thing. Um, Musically, we ever did, but I think Jeepster could have been a single, and there's a lot of stuff on the new album, musically, which I prefer as much. Just that you can only put one single out at a time. It's just this fascinating listening to Bowen talking at that he, time. He, he gives great interview. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. He enjoys being interviewed. He and Keith obviously knew each other pretty well. Yes. I think there was quite a lot going on. Interestingly, when we had Neil Tennant on, Pet Shop Boys, his, his very first interview was with Mark Bolan. And he talked about how they moved to another set of chairs and Mark Bolan walked back and picked up Neil's tape recorder and brought it back and put it on the table between them because he knew the deal. Like, <laughs> how you do interviews. He's, he's very engaging. I mean, there's something immensely likable. Jim, given that like they only really had the one big hit in America, known as Banger Gong. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't known as Get It On over there, but I think it got to like number two. <laughs> How do you sort of where do you place? How do you you know evaluate or reevaluate Mark Bolan all this time later? Well, as you say, they, they really weren't very big in America at all, you know, um, or he wasn't, you know. He was not really much of a star here. So it didn't have that kind of impact. I mean, you know, I, I really like those those records. Electric Warrior is a fantastic record. It's one of those things where every you can just you can just tell where everything has come together. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the cover is perfect, you know, the inside sleeve is perfect. The songs are 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 perfectly honed, you know. It's everything has kind of come together. So you know, you could in, in any band's career, if, if they're going to have something like that, you can always tell where they're kind of fumbling around at the beginning. And then when they get something just right, you know, and then it begins to fall apart after that. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's that's a real peak. I can't talk about it as, as a kind of pop phenomenon in America because he really wasn't, you know. Right. But 
I, I think I think they're they're great records. You know, I mean, the great recordings. Meaning, I mean, they're they're really great sounding records. They're I love the way they're produced. They still sound great. They sound really crisp and, and modern now. Uh, I think Tony Visconti's production is is there is a lot of subtle stuff going on there. Actually, I think Mark yeah. is right. Yeah, and altogether, it just sounds it's this, this rock song that has this, a little bit of this orchestral texture to it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Flo and Eddie singing in the background. And Flo and Eddie. Very often, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An yeah, amazing, yeah. A lot, an amazing yeah, a of, thing. They keep turning up. <laughs> I mean, given that, you know, Bowie famously or infamously declared that he was gay and always had been in that interview with Michael Watts from 1972. Did you, Jim, wonder whether Bowie really was gay? Did you wonder whether Mark Boland was was gay? Did you have any thoughts on that at the time as a teenager? Well, this is this I have you know written a bit about in, in both the, the the glam essays, you know. I mean, for the most part with these guys, I, it's a, the term that I have for it is sissy minstrelsy. You know, it's like, I get kind of, <laughs> so it's like Anthony, Anthony Heilbert type, type of term, isn't it, really? Yeah. Totally. I mean, so to me, it was kind of like, these guys are, I mean, especially when it came to Mott the Hoople, it's like, these guys are obviously straight, you know. Yeah. Um, Brickies and, in eyeliner, right? Brickies right. in and eyeliner. And it also was wasn't really threat. what, like, actual gay people were going to want to look like either. I mean, gay people at that time were trying to butch it up. (laughs) Well, that's a whole other thing. um, (laughs) So as far as Bowie goes, if you obviously you would remember that the inside sleeve of Aladdin Sane, you know, is him. It's smooth down there. You know, it's like there's no genitals at all. So especially with Bowie, you didn't, you didn't really think of him as in terms of, human gender it was kind of like this is a, a, a creature like an alien yeah. and that right. was it was great to think of him that way yes so for me as i said i loved the whole tease of it i loved I, it was very funny everything about glam was really funny which i guess people don't quite get now i mean the, the stars knew they looked ridiculous those clothes were not meant to be sexy you know they they, they look silly it's meant to be fun i can remember doing an interview with bowie actually um and it was way later. This would have been in the 2000s. And I guess we were talking about Velvet Goldmine, you know, the movie that was supposed to be about yeah. glam rock. Yeah. And I, I didn't think that movie was very good. And Me neither. Um, and I liked that director very much, but I, I didn't think that particular thing worked. And, and neither did Bowie. And, and he said one of the things that was wrong with the movie was that it wasn't funny, you know, right. and glam was really funny, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's to go to the original, I mean, the original Bowie quote, you know, I, I just... It seemed to me just so so clearly provocative, you know, just something to say. And and didn't Bowie try to sue years later the, the makers of Saturday Night Fever because there was a line where the, the fictional characters are talking about him as gay? So oh, that's kind of st- that. yeah. Okay. There's something something in there, you know. So <laughs> that all went some deconstructing <laughs> to be done. <laughs> yeah, and also it's it's fluid. You know, people's opinions change depending on what the you know where the wind is at the time. But for me, you know, the, the, the teasing gay element of glam rock was really very useful because, you know, at that time, I'm, I'm only, you know, 14, 15, 16. I'm not quite ready to come out yet, it's just slightly mm-hmm. before I would and did. So glam rock helped make, you know, bisexuality or implicit bisexuality cool for, you know, for rock fans, at least to say that, at least to give 
some kind of mouthing, so, you know, at least to kind of mimic it, you know, I mean, as, as, a, as a line, they weren't going to do anything about it. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's also an interesting contrast because it said everything about gender then was very, very funny in the same way that now everything about gender is absolutely dead serious and no one says anything <laughs> remotely funny about gender anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this context, the, the absolute apotheosis of all this is Freddie Mercury, isn't it? And you oh, start yeah. the New York Times essay or me- memoir piece very much with that. Just it's ex- all these kind of tough little guys who love Queen and they're coming to see Queen with no idea. It doesn't even seem to occur to them that Freddie right. is gay, even though he's he's at the front of the stage calling them my little beauties. I mean, bathing, this is such a fabulous No, I mean, at the time I was thinking, like, I cannot believe, like, I didn't even name the band Queen. I mean, what the fuck do I know. you want, you know? It's really you hiding think... in plain sight, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. do you think that is? But, but just, but just, the thing is, is that uh, the reason I used that story is because it shows the stupefying naivete of people at that time. People mm. really didn't know any, particularly young mm. people, didn't know anything about gay people. They didn't want to know anything about gay people. And and also at that time, like the idea of it was so repulsive to them, it was better just like to pretend it didn't exist, you know? Um, and that, weirdly enough, became its own protection at that time. It was like, you know, you can kind of, a lot of camp is like that. You can kind of clown around and people don't really want to connect the dots, which are sure. sitting right, you know, which actually are touching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they still don't want to connect them. So that became, uh, wow, I can, I can camp around and get away with it. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's ast- astonishing. When he died, I, I was just having, at the age of 35, driving lessons. And my driving instructor, who was a real beer-drinking lad, mm-hmm. was going on about Freddie Mercury. What a legend. And I, I just as an aside mentioned that he was gay, and he almost fell out of the car in astonishment. And this is years later. I mean, the guy looked like a clone you'd see walking down old mm. Compton Street, for God's sake. You know, yeah. it was an um, <laughs> extraordinary disconnect. I'm just, just baffling. Yeah. Well, at that time, he said around the time he died, the band still didn't talk, didn't talk about it. You it's know, true. Um, that came out, that all came out later. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and I mean, the reverse of all this, of course, or the obverse of all this is the story of Jabriath, who announces himself mm-hmm. as openly gay and his career basically kind of flatlines pretty quickly. So I always think this is a really interesting thing to look at. He died 40 years ago of AIDS. He had spent the final years of his life in the Chelsea Hotel, or at least up to a certain point, he was performing as as, some, as a character called Cole Berlin, mm-hmm. um, sort of in, in kind of cabaret joints. But he, as you know, Jim, I mean, you know, he was hyped to the hilt by manager Jerry Brandt, who seemed to genuinely believe in 1973, I guess on the back of like David Bowie, that an openly gay male star could succeed in America and, in fact, was going to be the next big thing. I mean, genuinely put $200,000 of his own money into the into Jabriah's career. Do you wow. remember him at the, at the time at all? I mean, of course. Was, yeah, yeah. And what, what, did, what did you think about that, given, you know, given that he was just out there? And I don't know whether I'd say out and proud, but he was out and it was – Almost unthinkable for the time. Uh, yeah, I think I think that he would refer to himself as the only true fairy. I think that was the way <laughs> he described himself. You know, yeah. folks, this is a real thing. And again, to me, 
you know, when you're a member of the tribe, you can tell like, you know, the real thing from the fake basically, mm-hmm. because this is how you feed, you know, it's like you, have, you have to know, you have to know how to smell out the food essentially. So you, you, develop, <laughs> you develop a sixth sense for this stuff. You know? um, what they call a gaydar these days. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, so it says, okay, yeah, this is the real thing. I get it. But there were a million reasons why he was not going to make it, you know, that, that didn't only have to do with the world not being ready at that time. I mean, it was a very, very uncommercial sound. I mean, when you listen to those records now, I mean, they are weird. They are weird by, by standards then. They are weird by standards now. The particular mixture of cabaret stuff and rock stuff is probably leaning too close to the cabaret thing and really mm-hmm. probably isn't rock enough. I do, the way that I remember those things, because the album uh, at the time was because the album covers were incredibly attention getting, you know, they looked really different. There was also part of things that, that Jerry Brandt laid out for was this giant billboard in Times Square, you know, which had that first album cover that was, you know, kind of shocking. And also like and on the, the backs of buses as well. I mean, thank you. <laughs> New York City buses. It's just right. so weird. Right. With his with his ass up out there, basically. And, yes. <laughs> you know, thank you. Um, uh, and, and also, but it was like, who the hell is that? You know, yeah. no yeah. one had any idea who it was, really. Um, the stuff really didn't get in the radio. Th- there was some or not much. He did get on Midnight Special, you know, which was a nationally broadcast show. But if you see that episode where he's on, the host is Gladys Knight. Love Gladys Knight, one of the greatest singers ever. Nothing against yeah. Gladys, but she introduced him on the show as Jabrave. You know? <laughs> it's like it's like thank yeah. you, <laughs> get the name right. I, I watched it again yesterday, Jim, and I'd forgotten it was Gladys who introduced yes. him. And I was so like, perfect. What, what Gladys actually made of it once the performance was over? She must have just been what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it probably would have been kissed Because it's very peculiar. It is it's very pretty peculiar. peculiar. Yeah. But, I, I mean, she's been she's in show business, so, I mean, I think she would have known <laughs> that people sometimes do insane things to try to get attention. So, you know. Given that the album was, I mean, it, it sort of stiffed. It actually got better reviews initially than perhaps people remember, but Ian McDonald just, just dismissed it as the fag end of rock, to coin oh, cool. a phrase. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, and... That's and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I suppose my question would be uh, when you listen back to things like I'm a man, you know, I mean, I, actually, they're they're not bad, are they? I think I'm a man is a pretty, pretty great track. And there's, there's, there's some interesting stuff there. It's just not as convincing, obviously, as David Bowie. Right. Well, you, you've chosen well. Uh, <laughs> I'm a man is one of the better tracks. Yeah. I mean, it's I would definitely file it, file it under interesting curio, you know, so mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that one of his big champions later would be Morrissey, although not enough of a champion to appear in the documentary. But <laughs> I love the detail that he attempted to secure Gibraltar as a support act for the Your, Your Arsenal tour in 1992. Gibraltar oh, was, uh, you know, nine years, I think, dead, dead at that years. point. Yeah, you know, so not aware that he was dead. That, that's a fantastic detail. But, you know, <laughs> Morrissey is always, you know, is going to like this extreme underdog, of course. Anyone who feels was unfairly, you know, uh, pilloried. And also anything that's that strange, you know, because it is strange. It still sounds strange. I was playing a little the other day and I thought, wow, this is harsh. This is kind of harsh on the ear. So we're featuring three pieces about Jabroyeth. 
the first is this interview that the late Rob Partridge did with Jerry Brandt, where Brandt is is just sort of going way over the top and talking about, you know, Gibraltar's too big to play the marquee, so I've booked the, the opera house in Paris for <laughs> six nights, kind of, you know, and, and and on and on and on. I mean, it's just it's if he talk about hubris and oh my God, it was a he fell from a great height, Jerry Brown, right. around around the city, not. And then so as a result of that. The New York debut by Jabroth was actually not like Madison Square Garden or whatever Jerry was cooking up. It was the bottom line, right? And mm-hmm. it's just a, just a, I mean, it was sold out, but it was the bottom line. And it's, it's, it's a, a an amusing review by Ian Dove for the, for the New York Times. And then there's this piece, which I remember reading in Mojo from 1998 by a guy called Rob Cochrane, who, who wrote, I mean, it was the longest piece anyone had ever written about Jabroth at that point. And he later wrote, a biography of of Gibraltar. and there's just there's a lot of really i mean it is a fascinating story mm-hmm. the last piece is a dave marsh piece from newsday november 74 called glitter rocks lingering shadow and it's quite an interesting piece about the way the sort of glitter thing is 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 slightly sort of dying out and it's a good example of that as he talks about the new conservatism of david bowie's the what he's wearing behind like uh young americans you know suits and so forth and i just wanted to ask you how how you sort of you know given all the given the, the figures we've talked about do you remember did you have any sense of of sadness that glitter was was fading away and and actually all you were left with was the same old homophobia at least until the 80s when you get all these very flamboyant you know new romantic characters Mm-hmm. who who are who some of whom really are you know are, are really out like Jabroth was so how do you how do you remember the kind of post glam pre new romantic sort of period well for me i i thought it was great actually <laughs> because remember you know i'm still quite young then and when you're young you're you're really uh, onto the next thing and for me the next thing and this is another great bit of luck in my life was so this is right when this is ending in 1974 or five is when the CBGB's thing is starting. Right. So that, so it goes directly into punk and that's yeah. super fantastic and super different. And yay. It was like, I was on, you know, onto the next thing, but it's interesting. If you look at pictures, early pictures of the audience at CBGB's, if you're talking really early on, it's probably 74, 75 really is when it's really getting going. If you look at the audience, you'll see that, that, that the, that the people in the audience look like either kind of NYU preppies or they're still, I probably came there with platforms, you know, still have like glitter shoes. Mm. So it was, it was still transitioning. That was one thing that was really, really wrong about many things that was wrong, was wrong, culturally wrong about Spike Lee's movie, uh, the summer of 77 or summer of Sam, I think that movie was called Mm. because he has a lot of scenes there that are at CBGB's and he has the audience looking like, you know, like British punks, you know, with like mohawks and everything. And, and if you looked anything like that, you know, you were on stage and at that point you didn't really look like that, Mm -hmm. you know, um, because, and then, so this is a long answer, but the the short answer to your question was like, I was onto the next thing, you know, and the next thing turned out to be even more incredible and where I was lucky enough to be there right when it was starting. So I, I first saw talking heads as an acoustic three piece, you know, before wow. Jerry Harrison. So they were really, it was very, very new. And mm-hmm. we were ordered to go by the Village Voice, you know. Um, uh, and I did everything the Village Voice told me. 
Um, <laughs> James James Walcott had written, who's a fantastic, fantastic writer. Yeah, that great piece from early 76. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was the one that, that Tiller went to go. But I, I think we started going in 75, so I must have heard about it already. Maybe okay. just... Mm-hmm. Probably just seeing ads in the back of the voice, you know, because that's how you would know the next club to go to if, yeah, it would just, you just see what the ads are and something would excite you or you heard a buzz about this group. And so you mm. could see yeah. mm-hmm. them. Of course, the New York Dolls are the link between, yes. in a yes. way, British glam and punk rock is, is them. And, you know, everything I was just going to say the same thing, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really important point. I was saying, well, how did we not mention the New York Dolls? And, and so I'm glad you did. Because it's, 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 it's key, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. But you wouldn't, like, I, I never saw the Dolls, you know, because when uh, they're playing, like, the, the, I mean, I saw them later. But I never mm-hmm. saw them when in their initial run because they were playing, what, the Mercer Arts Center or whatever That's was right. on the Lower East Side until the whole place collapsed one day in the middle of the show. <laughs> the floor actually collapsed. The whole yeah, thing yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Famous story. So I, I actually never saw them there. So I had the album, you know, those two albums, which were probably by the time I got them cutouts, you know, because they, they were like instant cutouts. They were such yeah, bombs. Yeah. And I was really taken with it. They, they, even then I knew like the production was really bad. You know, they're, like, <laughs> they're really, they're, they're bad sounding records. <laughs> as fantastic as the material and the performances you know they're, they're not they're not well produced i mean sadly then the same thing happened to johnny thunders with the heartbreakers that record sounds a complete dog and they were a pretty good live band yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 so Listen, you were 25 years at, at the daily news and as you said earlier jim you you had to write about anyone and everyone right and you did that extremely well and elegantly and there's a lot of extraordinary writing there. An obvious question to ask at a, a very sad moment is if you ever interviewed Sinead O'Connor. Oh, yes. I think three different times. Okay. And she was uh, twice in person. There was one on the phone. I always found her, you know, to be really great, uh, really honest, obviously. I mean, to mm-hmm. a fault, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that she would get into trouble with some, jur- you know, there were a lot of journalists who, who would bait her, you know, mm-hmm. I think, and would come in with a very tabloid thing. But, you know, the American journalists didn't really do that, you know, like a lot of, a lot of British journalists, not so much British rock writers, but, you know, at, at the, you know, at the day. The showbiz specialists. Yeah, 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 where they really, you know, they're like poking everything and it's clear they don't know anything about music or care anything about music. But, you know, once it was clear that I was, you know, really took her music seriously, you know. Then, you know, she would talk about anything. There was one one interview I remember where she was quite vulnerable, I mean, and, and more fragile. I guess the thing that people might not, the other, most of the interviews that I did with her, she came off as very strong, you know. I mean, she, yeah. she felt, you know, she, she didn't seem fragile. But there was one interview, and I think it was the one where she, is when she came out as, uh, where, she, where she became a minister or something, or what, when she, Correct. What, whatever she became, and I think they're a lesbian at the same time or something. <laughs> that, that was, that's entirely possible. Totally possible. Um, I, think, I think they came at the same time. And so I had probably more questions about, like, how does this work? And um, she was – it just seemed a little bit more fragile. Mo- but, with, you know, I think, sure, with Sinead O'Connor, it's like the moment, you know. I mean, she was so changeable. I thought of her – you know, it, she, she's such a – fantastic and, and, and difficult person and, and life to, to even sum up, you know, I mean, yeah, she yeah. lived like this open wound, essentially. Yeah. It was all laid out there. 
to me, the song that I was playing, I don't know if you know it, it's um, a fantastic, fantastic song written by John Grant called Queen of Denmark. And I first heard her version before. And it's, this song is, it's the reason I keep thinking of it now, it's, it's, it's one of the great angry fuck you songs of all time. This, this song really makes Positively Four Street seem like a Valentine's Day card. I mean, it is so <laughs> over the top. And she really inhabits that fury and that rage. And also it helped, you know, John's lyrics are very funny. So it's, you know, that, that really helps. It's a very, very funny song. But, you know, she, and I love John's version of it. But she, to me, like, if I could tell anybody, like, that's the song to listen to if you want to hear her really let it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you really have no right to want anything from me at all. Why don't you take it out? One of the things that really damaged her in in America particularly was the tearing the picture of the Pope up on, on stage. And of course, she was ahead of the story about the abuse going on in with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. No one was talking about it. She was one of the first people I ever heard mention that as a as a thing, you know. Yes. And she was crucified for it. But it was that was brave. That was that, that was that was Well, the, 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 the one problem yes, but the one problem with that which she certainly later admitted was that at least in America no one had any idea what she was doing. You know, yeah. we had no I mean, literally it was like you're like, oh, she's ripping a picture of the Pope, you know, for me as like, you know, just my rebel yell self was like Great, you know, like this. I mean, first of all, I thought it was <laughs> hilarious. You know, I mean, like right. what a totally cool thing to do. But that's just you know me, anarchist nihilist punk at that point, thinking like sure. you know, burn everything. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> that's always a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so then, you know, obviously, other people were you're a little more sensitive about it. And it was only in America, I remember a few years later, when she when she said, "Yes, I really should have told people what that was all about." But that led to what I still think one of the most incredible moments. You know, was then that eventually when she's playing Madison Square Garden, what is it a week later in that Dylan tribute, she comes out there and the audience starts to boo her. And this is a Dylan audience. Mm -hmm. So that was really scary. She thought like, wow, of all people, of all audiences who should get this, that's when you're like, this is really dangerous. And then that incredibly, you know, brave and wonderful moment when, where she begins to kind of break down and Chris Christopherson comes out and yes. comforts her. Yeah. It was very, I, mean, I want to cry now. It's very moving. Yeah. And yeah. it was such a great thing for him to do. You know, yes, for him absolutely. to say like, you know, shut the fuck up, you know, let yeah, her talk. It, was, it was like a Trump rally for me. When I think back to it, there was yeah. there were Trumpian elements to that. And then when, you know, people like Sinatra and Joe Pesci, you know, literally sort of threatened physical violence towards this young Irish girl. It got pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's one of the most amazing pop culture moments. But, you know, I'm sure if she could have done it all, I don't know how she would have done it, but, you know, she would have tried to provide some context. Because, as yes. I said, I mean, yeah. I don't know what you made of it. I mean, in America, I remember watching when it happened. Again, anarchist me thought how cool, you know, burn everything. That sounds like fun. But I also had no idea what she was doing. Mm. You know, and I don't I know mean, anybody who did. I, I didn't have 
weirdly, it, it went relatively unreported here. I mean, it was mentioned, wow. but it was, ne- it was never like a big story. Oh, wow. This picture of the Pope. It was a much bigger story in America. She did then afterwards, in interviews in the British press, talk about the abuse going on in the Catholic oh, okay, Church, okay. which gave, which, which did give it context, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I mean, the thing is, that also, like, her version of Prince is nothing compares to you. It's just an astonishing record, you know. And dear old Prince's version just is, like, tiny compared to hers. And yet hers is the most sparse recording. There's hardly anything there. It was great. Fantastic. Even the video, you know, just her, just yeah. her face, you know, and it was it's, just spectacular. No, it's one of the great, the great, like, pop moments, I think. I mean, Absolutely. Of course, then, you know, later we, we heard these stories about Prince getting violent with her at Paisley Park, which is which is a really bizarre story. Whoa, that, yeah. I, yeah. I don't, that passed me yeah, by. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, aside from all of this and the, and just, I mean, you know, the pretty sad story, really, certainly of the last, you know, 15, 20 years. I mean, what what do you, Jim, kind of make of the body of work, the music, the very different sorts of albums that she made? I mean, do you have a, 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 a do you come away from from all that with a, a sure sense of what Sinead was musically? Yeah, I mean, she did a lot of different things. There was a, uh, an album she did, uh, a, a, a kind of gospel album, gospel very much her way. Certainly wouldn't sound like American gospel. And, <laughs> no. and she and she did a show, actually, uh, at, uh, at Lincoln Center, um, mm-hmm. doing the gospel stuff. And it was really fantastic. Um, I remember for that, I also remember because as I was, as I was walking in, who is standing, whose ticket is right behind me, but Robert Plant. Um, who I was going to see, and I, and I, you know, you, when you're suddenly a celebrity, and it's not like we know each other, you know, suddenly when you see a celebrity, you kind of just, blur, I just said like, oh, I'm coming to see your show tomorrow, which he was, because he was playing in Brooklyn the next day. Right. And he said, oh, he said, oh, good, I'll see you there. So, um, <laughs> but then he, he was sitting like behind me in the show, and, you know, it, it, you know, he, I know he really liked the show as well. So that would, that was a, a different side of her, this gospel thing. I mean, she mm-hmm. came out doing, you know, with Mandink. I mean, these very kind of in-your-face pieces and then got back to it. That album that Queen of Denmark is on is, is a really great album. I, th- I, think the t- I think it's from 2012, and I think it's called something like uh, Why Don't You Be You and I'll Be Me or something right. like that. That's probably the yeah, exact title. That, that's it's pretty close. It's something like that. So that was kind of a return to that more um, uh, in-your-face kind of stuff. There was a long period in between where it was a kind of a lot of fetal position stuff to me, you know, yeah. she kind of, it just seemed so inward and they were fascinating recordings, but it was, it, they were kind of hard to listen to. Yeah. They were yeah. so completely internalized. Yeah. Well, I mean, I felt incredibly sad and sort of overwhelmed when I heard the news yesterday and parts of me thought, well, maybe this was always coming. I think I did sort of dread that this might always be coming. I met her once and I had a very short conversation with her and, and, and thought she was lovely, you know, and then reading about various things that have happened since then. It's been quite shocking at times following her through her, her, her life. And then the suicide of her son last yeah. year was, yeah. I think just the last the last straw, the last straw for her. Just, I think she just went under at that point. So, yeah, goodbye, Sinead, and thanks for a lot of amazing mm, music.
Mark, do you want to tell us about some some pieces that you've added recently? And Jim, if you've got anything to say about any of these names, just just jump in, pitch in. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, only only really kind of a handful of things. I mean, Nick Jones wrote a piece, Melody Maker, in 1967, about how British audiences were so well, London audiences in particular were ultra cool, would very rarely demonstrate pleasure in what they were doing. And he's talking to Pete Townsend, who talks about his then as just the who had just started playing the American circuit. And he says, the audience at the Fillmore was too much. They just dug what we did, just for what it was. They became as much part of the music as you are. I don't like to say it, but the vibrations make everything go. And I must admit, there's, there's a lot of truth. I remember going to the Albert Hall in like 70, 71, around there, 71, 72. And the audiences, with the exception of a handful of shows like Mott the Hoople, they were very overcool. You didn't get the sort of the massive love that you get there. This week, second part of Val Mab's really fascinating interview with John Lennon and Yoko Ono for Record Mirror 1971. And he's talking about the song How Do You Sleep, which, of course, is notoriously about Paul McCartney. And he says, a perverted mind can think it's about Paul. I'll let you form your own opinion. It's surreal enough to be about anyone, like Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Anyway, on Ram, there are a lot of references to us, like in the the line suggestion that George and I got a break in meeting him. Um, Mm. So, you know, we forget how poisonous the vibe was in the, 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 the just ex-Beatles camp at that moment. Yeah, and he's being pretty disingenuous. How do you sleep? Is, is entirely 100% <laughs> about Paul McCartney. Right. I, I, I love it. That could be about anybody. It's always like, no, it can't. <laughs> yeah, it could be about it. <laughs> Exactly. Um, uh, and he says, people blame Yoko for breaking up the Beatles. Well, then can she please have the credit for the great albums that came out? It was a natural development for us to make, and I think it's worked out well. Then in 1977, a new writer for us, uh, Mark Bliesner, writing for the, the most obscure of music, music titles I think that we have ever come across is the Rocky Mountain Musical Express, 1977. But it's fascinating. It's an interview with Ralph Hutter of Kraftwerk, and he said it's just a really great interview. Um, first of all, he's talking about disco, and Ralph says, in disco music, the repetitive pattern and very simple direction within the music is similar. We very much like this kind of thing, rather than someone doodling around with a long guitar solo, someone just showing off their playing ability is boring. And then this, this, this is a slightly long quote. This is great. He says, now we have a big amateur movement in electronic music in Germany. People are no longer going to shops and buying guitars. People are playing with tape recorders, small oscillators, and inexpensive synthesizers, and starting to form electronic groups. It's fantastic. In a couple <laughs> more years, a couple more years, there'll be more of this, even in the traditional rock countries like England and America. More all electronic groups. People look back on rock groups and these rock instruments and realize they've had their day. The guitar is an old invention from the Middle Ages. There's nothing you can play on a guitar that hasn't been played a thousand times before. Synthesizers open up a space where a creative person can play anything that is in their minds. Now, this is 1977, and he's predicting yeah. electric. That is remarkable. It's, oh, totally, 77. Yeah. it's just so interesting to read that. It, it, it's just fantastic. very last thing is um, Primal Screams, Andrew Innes to Helen Mead, an ID in 1991. This is around the time of Screamadelica. Um, Primal Scream are in, shall we say, bad odour currently due to the, the maltreatment of 
their own band's members over the years. Anyway, he says, it's mental. We've made a fucking great record, and it's as good as anything the Beatles or the Stones ever did, and it's completely original. In some ways, I'd be happy to retire just knowing I made that record. What would I do? Take drugs and die happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's my my lot. (laughs) That's that's a great interview. (laughs) (laughs) Did Screamer Delica mean anything? to you jim or in in america i mean i don't think it it was a huge record and i still oh. think it was a pretty great record but do you know it scream Adelica? i do but it, it yeah. didn't make a big deal here um no. you know i mean there's all those you know there's a lot of groups from that period that didn't really make much of a it was, so Brit- <laughs> it was a very british kind of of hedonism wasn't it really and it sure. didn't seem to translate in quite the way that um that someone like bobby gillespie would have hoped i still think it is a fantastic album so yeah, I, you know even you know Britpop, i mean didn't really do that much here you know i mean oasis had you know one or two hit records yeah it didn't really I, I, last i i just proved up a live review of Oasis playing Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. Which is, okay. that, that tells you the level that they reached in America. Right. Well, they did have some success, didn't they? But they somewhere in one of your essays, actually, Jim, where you, you talk, I think you talk about how Britpop was, in a sense, a return to kind of very heterosexual laddishness. There wasn't an awful lot of sexual ambiguity. Well, I'm proving, I'm proving Ralph Hutter absolutely wrong. Yeah. People look back on rock groups and these rock instruments and realise they've had their day. They uh, have not had their day. No, no. <laughs> step forward. Step forward, Noel and Liam. Um, anyway, none of us are particularly huge fans of Britpop, apart from maybe like Pulp. And, and a few other things, but it was it was very sort of, you know, laddish, sort of numbskull, Burt Beatles worshipping sort of laddishness for, for us. Not enough gay in there, frankly. Oh, well, I, I, um, I, I love a lot of numbskull stuff. You know? <laughs> and also, you know, it, it's kind of, a, it's a little, I understand why this would happen because of what we're particularly featuring here and talking about glam rock. But, you know, the fact is, is even these essays that you're talking about where I it was uh, writing about gay stuff and more personal stuff. I mean, for most of my career, I never wrote about any of that. You know, I mean, I'm always yeah. out in the world. But, like, I think most of the readers of the Daily News, I, I think uh, I know this, you know, I would be very surprised to, to find out that I was gay because they really? didn't, they're not mm-hmm. seeing me or hearing me. Yeah. And they're just, you know, reading the stuff. And I'm writing about heavy metal and hip hop and, you know, whatever well, is it, out there. And, I, you know, it's like... The, I mean, if friends have asked me, they, you know, they, they said, like, it's a, said, you never ever wrote about gay stuff. Now you're writing about gay stuff all the time. Like, what, what, what happened? And I said, first, nobody asked before. Right. <laughs> and now everybody asks. Don't so, ask, don't tell, right? <laughs> yeah. Totally. On, 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 yeah. On, on, a subject of, on a subject of you liking numbskulls, numbskulls yes. stuff, oh, yes. is I love your review of Motorhead's No Sleep Till Hammersmith from oh, Cream in 1981, where the last paragraph is, but a lot of things about Motorhead will always be hard for people to accept. Many will insist on doing them as a heavy metal band, even as yours truly did at first. But after one, uh, but after one listens closely, it should be clear that their ultra extreme style fits into only one broad category. Motorhead are an art rock band. I was looking at his conceptual art. In my defense. Um, I think it's great. Jim, Jim, I, I have a question on the back of all of this, which was, right. it, which is this. If you, were commissioned to interview 
Ted Nugent now. Mm, like wow. you had your reunion with Robert Fripp. Uh-huh. How about someone calls you up and says, would you like to be reunited with <laughs> Theodore Nugent III? Talk about sexuality uh, and diversity <laughs> in the Trumpian age. Would you accept that challenge? Um, sure. Um, but I, you know, I, not, it's nothing I'm dreaming of. Um, you know, that, Bring your own crossbow, right? Well, I, what I should say is that to get the proper context of that, uh, I believe that was Ted's, that was his first, co- uh, his first national cover story. Right. Um, okay. and, it, and, and it was certainly mine as well. So he was happy for it at the time. But the thing is, is that the understanding of Ted Nugent at that time within the rock world was that he was an outlier as a kind of conservative. So that seemed, it, you know, there was no real, there was nobody else like that. Right. So nobody felt threatened by it in any way. And also we kind of thought it was a little bit of a joke. You know, there was, I, yeah, I, yeah. I kind of felt like, oh, he's, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you then in, in that interview, I doubt that it's in the piece, but there's a thing where I go meet him in the studio and he's there with his publicist and whoever else. And he looks at me and I it said, I'm like, you know, 18 at the time. I probably looked like 12, basically. So he goes, he goes like, oh, is this, is this the interview? Said, yeah. So um, so when we're going to go do the interview at, at a restaurant, he's and the, the publicist said, what, what kind of food do you want to eat? He, he says, and I quote, this is Ted Nugent. He says, let's go get some nip food. Yeah. If that is in the <laughs> That piece. is in the piece. Oh, yeah. wow. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, Perfect. so that's, it goes from yeah. there. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Fascinating. Jasper, have you got anything? Sure, yeah. I mean, continuing the sort of guitar riffs thing, big riffs from across the pond, Max Bell and Stevie Chick in the Evening Standard. US Garage Rock is back, and Detroit and New York are where it's at. Stevie Chick and Max Bell look at the new breed chasing spirit of Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground, and it's interesting because it takes goes to Detroit and speaks to Jack White, White Stripes. They go to New York, talking about the Strokes. And Jack White is very much looking back and reflecting on, as Jack White, I think, basically always has the Stooges and MC5 are in everybody's blood says white and Detroit's a largely black city black people invented the greatest forms of music jazz blues soul R&B and rock and roll there's no escaping that influence and then in the section about New York they write while longtime NYC fans might look for parallels with the Velvet Underground or Talking Heads Green and I think that's Adam Green of the Moldy Peaches insists that the current generation of bands aren't throwbacks. The Strokes, who are one of the coolest bands here, can be spotted a mile off, but their fans aren't interested in the Stooges and MC5. They want the new thing, and to me that's kind of curious because in a way, even though the White Stripes, Jack White was much more backward-looking consciously, it's kind of lasted a bit longer than the Strokes, who were kind of a flash in the indie cool pan in a sense. Yeah, on, on the subject of glam, I remember when Barney and I went to see the White Stripes at the Astoria, and it suddenly struck me that Jack White sounded just like as a vocalist, just like the bass player of some, from Sweet. I remember seeing both <laughs> the Strokes and the White Stripes in that year, and you know, kind of liking both of them. I mean, in the end, I've I've sort of stayed more loyal to Jack White, and probably because there is just this more kind of there's more black roots in his sound there's more blues and and uh you know and soul really in there and uh, and i think the strokes were very sort of upper middle class white did you like the strokes as a new york band jim that first album when it came out i thought was great it was you great, know? great and then the second one was is this it yeah i thought it was a perfect record but yeah, it was really nowhere for them to go to me the limitation of that band is Julian, the singer, who 
really is a very effective way of singing, which can be fine for one album. But this, I don't think he was ever able to connect any deeper emotion. Mm. Um, I think he can only come at a, a song one way. And so everything sort of, to me, just starts to sound the same. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 I agree. There's not a lot of soul in there. No, I think that first record is is really great. But then, you know, like you said, it sort of peters out. And I think that's kind of telling. Of, and I think you can you can almost sort of sense it in this piece. I think they're more than a flash in the pan. I think they're more than a flash in the pan. I think there's there's a but but I mean I I think Jack White is is the more impressive figure over over the Definitely. over the course of like two decades. The strokes also, you're coming from a New York point of view, you'd hear those kind of skinny guitars like that, because that would connect with the feelies and television, a lot of other kind of a New Absolutely. York sound, you know? So, was, so especially for us here, it was like, oh, this is, this is home. You know, this, this yes. is a very New York guitar sound. Yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. Exactly. Definitely. Meet Me in the Bathroom, the, the book and the, the, the film, which I'm sure you've seen, Jim. What else have you got, Jasper? Pet Shop Boys, our back catalogue is 25 years of social commentary. Julian Marzalek in the in the Quietus in March 2009. We've sort of mentioned Neil Tennant earlier, so it seemed like a reasonable thing to mention. It's an interesting interview. He says, politics and everyday life have always been a massive inspiration for the lyrics of the Pet Shop Boys. You could probably go through all of our songs and you'd find the social history of the last 25 years. Opportunities comment on Thatcherism. Shopping was about privatisation of national industries, while our previous album, Fundamental, was sort of about the political climate and the angst created by George W. Bush. It's just a good good interview with, you know, Neil Tennant is always interesting to read. So so Julian Marzalek yeah. is, is someone, a writer who's, who's relatively recently on board the good ship Rocks Back Pages. So I thought I'd mention that. I love in that Mark Almond um, interview, Jim, Mark tells you that he's a bit scared of, of Neil Tennant because Neil's such an intellectual. <laughs> and then there's this yeah. very sweet moment where ne- Neil, unbeknownst to Soft Cell, Neil and Chris remix mm-hmm. a soft cell track and they oh, yeah, yeah. and I think they like bring it to them and Mark is is so he's just sort of overwhelmed with with gratitude. Yeah, he was he he said he would uh he, he I think the quote was something like he said Neil's going to think I'm such a bore. I think I'm going to I'm an yeah. idiot. You so know, it's sweet. Good, yeah, it's very <laughs> sweet. Yeah, he's a sweet man. He's a very sweet man. Jasper, sorry. Lastly, next, uh, no, yeah, no, yeah. no problem. Lastly, love Bell and Sebastian style. Laura Barton interviews Bell and Sebastian in The Guardian in September 2010. And there's a funny bit where they're talking about, because it's, it's on, on their album, Bell and Sebastian write about love. And Nora Jones is on that record, you know, at the point where she's really at the peak of her stardom. And it's just they're, they're talking about how they how they got that collaboration to happen. That was just a happy arrangement. We realized we couldn't afford her, Murdoch admits, in the band laugh. We got lucky because she was swinging through town on tour when we were recording and she came and we were all ready to do the track. There was this magazine interview with her where she was talking about liking this particular brand of whiskey. And so Stuart went off to get her this whiskey. And then Stuart Murdoch interrupts. I didn't get her that whiskey because it was too expensive. I just got her the cheap kind. <laughs> <laughs> the actual recording was remarkably seamless and Murdoch succeeded in getting Jones to sing the unlikely line, can I stay until the milkman's working, can I stay until the cafe opens, in a song that somehow holds together the romantic influence of Lou Reed, Jack Carrack and John Lennon. I thought she had magic, you know, says Jackson, a little dreamily. She came in, lovely girl, we're chatting away, and then she puts her headphones on and starts singing and bloody hell, it's no wonder she sold 36 million albums or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. I just didn't know she sung on a Bell and Sebastian album. Can I stay? 
Well, I think we we are actually about, we're going to wrap up this wonderful episode. It's yeah. been an absolute joy speaking with you. Is there anything you else you want to tell us or anything you need to promote? <laughs> anything <laughs> barbaresque uh, you want the world to know about, Jim? I mean, you know, now I, I write pretty regularly for The Guardian and, yes. uh, and a lot of we stuff for The New York Times. love seeing stuff here. Yeah, I, I really, having, they're, they're having great, you at the for. breakfast table is, is a great joy. Well, I, I never know what turns up in print. I mean, because but everything is online and that's how I see it because we don't see right. the print stuff here, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But no, I'm, I'm writing as much as ever, you know, and enjoying it more than ever. And I hope I'm writing a lot better than a lot of the, the embarrassing stuff that you're going to be putting up there, which was written <laughs> 40 years ago. Yes. I mean, I, you yeah. know, <laughs> but I have to say, I felt a little better because it now for, for research purposes, I've been reading through a lot of things on Rock's back pages, you know, and I'm seeing a lot of stuff and I'm reading it, I think, in, in the proper framework, which is this is what was written in the day. This is what was appropriate to, you know, that they're, mm. they're snapshots of that time, you know, exactly. and I think I hope that people see it in that context. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have access to the, I mean, a lot of the daily news stuff, which I, which I really like is, um, you know, is, is really mean. It's like, I don't, well, I just don't know how it would go over these. Swift, days. Swift question. <laughs> um, were you, were you staffed in the daily? News? Yes, he was. Oh definitely. yes. No, I was, you yeah. know, I was on staff for, I mean, yeah. really, I was really there for 30 years because I was on staff for, uh, 25, but I was a columnist for five years before that. I did it. I used to, I did a Sunday combat music video, and the right. idea was to take it seriously as an art form. That's going back to the 80s when one might do that. And sure. then from there, then I did a, a music video column periodically also for Rolling Stone and for Entertainment Weekly. Right. Um, so that became kind of a thing, you know, writing uh-huh. a lot about to, to, you know, to kind of take these a lot of the directors at their word, you know, that they sure. were trying to make little films. And, you know, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of those people at that time who were the big stars were like David Fincher, you know, I mean, there were people who did go on to become serious yeah. filmmakers. Yeah, you know? exactly. Mm-hmm. And is there anything nowadays that, that makes you want to evangelize the voice of God, you know, than when you're writing today? Everything, you know, I mean, ev- everything I'm writing about is something, although I have to say, unfortunately, so much of what I write about now is about something that ha- something fantastic that happened 50 years ago. So yeah. I'm always, I mean, most, I've, I'm, you know, swamped in assignments now, but almost everything is somebody's memoir, you know, so it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, memoir of what great things that happened 50, 60 years ago, a documentary on something fantastic that happened 50, 60 years ago. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. um, and there's so yeah. much of that now. You know, mm-hmm. because there's an audience for the it. Nostalgia machine. Well, also, like, you know, the, the music documentaries, a lot of them have been really good. I mean, there was that yes. little run in there where I think something like three out of four years were, were the best Oscar documentary was a music film. You know, there was the Nina Simone mm-hmm. one and there was the, uh, uh, the 20 feet 20 feet from Stardom. Yeah. And yeah. there was, um, oh, uh, uh, Summer of Soul. Yeah, right. oh, we love that. Yeah, there's a that. great little Wham documentary that just came out. Oh, we have, it is good. We've licensed some audio for, in fact, it's really good. There's about four George Michael docs, as far as I can see, but there's this this one just called Wham that just mm-hmm. came out on mm-hmm. on Netflix, which is really charming and yeah. uh, very well put together. Uh, actually. I actually I thought it was terrific, but I thought I thought the one about him being busted in Los Angeles for what we in this country right. call cottaging yeah. uh, was in some ways a bit, was in some ways a better documentary. It was actually, okay. that was really interesting about how he grabbed hold of the story and turned it round. 
by I haven't seen that one. Is that is that one that's wholly focused on that? Yes. Oh, yes. because there's another there's another new one that's running now. Simon Napier Bell, you know, who was Wham's manager and oh, yeah. sure Yardbirds, and he did one about George Michael, just on George Michael. That's new. Right. That, that's quite good. It's quite hard to keep up. I don't know why this sudden spate of of things about George, particularly, but it just seems to have happened that way. And we've licensed audio to two of them, which is extraordinary. But we really should wrap up, and we should yeah, we let go. go, Jim. We got to go. <laughs> go. I have a story to write. <laughs> you have a story to write. And uh, but listen, thank you so much for joining us today and thank for you. being on Rocks Back Pages. We've been trying to get you on there for many years. We finally we we, we held no. you down, forced you to sign a piece of paper. <laughs> in London. Um, but honestly, we are so honoured to have you. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. you're really one of the the great music writers. And uh, just thank you for being so entertaining entertaining and interesting today do read jim's stuff on rocks back pages it there'll be more and more of that being added including things that will embarrass him no doubt but uh, <laughs> if you uh do subscribe to rocks back pages to read oh, well over fifty thousand articles and to listen to well over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi hendrix to kate bush to kurt cobain and we will be back in two weeks with charles shaw murray nme legend Mm -hmm. also on zoom but look after yourself jim thanks again so much thank you thank you so much had a great time thanks That concludes episode 157 of the Roxback Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jim Farber. Follow him on Twitter at Jim Farber Music. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Roxback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at roxbackpages.com. Mm-hmm.